Well, good morning. I'd like to begin with a prayer. Almighty and ever-living God, source of all wisdom and understanding, be present with those who take counsel here together for the renewal and mission of your kingdom as expressed in our schools. Teach us in all things to seek first your honor and glory. Guide us to perceive what is right and grant us both the courage to pursue it and the grace to accomplish it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome to Recovering Classical Philosophy for the Classroom. Uh, The description of this breakout session says that we've done a really good job at the great books, at the humanities, at thinking about the trivium, um, but we uh, maybe have some work to do in how we teach or incorporate uh, philosophy into our, um, into our classes. And given the ubiquity and importance of the schools of philosophical thought in the classical world, it seems like it's, like it's a no-brainer. So um, according to the poll that I, I sent, um, everyone teaches logic. It's good. Logic's important. Most people have something to, to say about moral philosophy or ethics, and then, you know, it's hit or miss on the rest. Um, whether we teach epistemology, whether we teach um, uh, metaphysics, whether we're teaching um, aesthetics explicitly, things like that. So um, I want to help us think about these things. And begin with this quote from Aristotle's Metaphysics. Um, there's a version of it here, but the full-length one goes like this. It is through wonder that men uh, now begin that, that men now begin and originally began to philosophize, wondering in the first place at obvious perplexities, and then by gradual progression raising questions about the greater matters too, e.g. about the changes of the moon and of the sun, about the stars and about the origin of the universe. Now he who wonders and is perplexed feels that he is ignorant. Thus, the myth lover is, in a sense, a philosopher, since myths are composed of wonders. Therefore, it was to escape ignorance that men studied philosophy. It is obvious that they pursued science for the sake of knowledge and not for any practical utility. The actual course of events bears witness to this, for speculation of this kind began with a view to recreation and pastime at a time when practically all the necessities of life were already supplied. Clearly, then, it is for no extrinsic advantage that we seek this knowledge. For just as we call a man independent who exists for himself and not for another, so we call this the only independent science, since it alone exists for itself. Now, he's explicitly describing metaphysics there, but the point is made. Philosophy is about leaving ignorance behind and discovering the truth. Uh, as soon as we start talking about the practical application of philosophy, we have um, lost it, I think. Um, as a teacher of uh, the class I mostly teach is our Theology 3 course, which is a course on ethics. Um, it's essentially a philosophy course, a course in moral philosophy. Um, and I begin with Plato's Republic, uh, teach Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics, um, talk a lot about virtue ethics throughout the, throughout the year. So I'm essentially teaching a course in philosophy. Um, And it's important when I teach this to distinguish between a philosopher and a sophist. So 
what is philosophy? Well, we probably all know that the word philosophy means love of wisdom. And the story goes that Pythagoras was called by his followers a uh, sophist, a wise man. And he rejected the label as, I'm not wise, I just love wisdom. And I think that's fair. We, he became known as the first philosopher, or not the first, but one of the first philosophers. Um, Socrates also is famously called a philosopher, and he clearly distinguishes himself from the sophists. Um, the story of Socrates, I think, is well known, but in brief, Socrates, when he wanted to know things, um, his, uh, the oracle at Delphi said, oh, Socrates is the wisest man in the world. And Socrates said, well, that can't possibly be true, because I, I, I know that I have no wisdom. I know that I have no wisdom. So what he's going to do is prove the oracle wrong. So he spends the rest of his life going around and asking people questions in an attempt to gain wisdom, to prove that he's not the wisest man around. But everywhere he goes, no one else has wisdom either. And he concludes that, that he's the wisest man in the world only because he recognizes that he's not wise. Well, everyone else thinks they're wise, but they're not. Well, he is a self-described gadfly of Athens, um, a horsefly, maybe we could say, who stung his uh, interlocutors until they uh, would answer his questions. Super annoying. He ends up being prosecuted for being annoying, basically, uh, for <clears throat> teaching the youth to ask questions. Um, and rather than standing in his own defense, which he could easily have done, he instead famously uh, irritates the jury so that more people vote to execute him than voted to convict him in the first place. He says, you should be thankful for me, you need me, and when I die, I hope my followers harass you, and um, make sure, do me a favor with my sons, harass them, don't let them become pompous fools like yourselves. <laughs> <clears throat> now, Socrates' accusers in the Apology argued that, quote, Socrates commits injustice and is a busybody and that he investigates the things beneath the earth and in the heavens and makes the weaker argument appear stronger <clears throat> and, worst of all, teaches these things to others. This is the same sort of accusation often leveled at philosophers because philosophy, rightly practiced, asks us to examine ourselves, to open ourselves up to being wrong. Philosophy is dangerous, as the Athenian jury knew well. It's a dangerous thing. The sophists, on the other hand, taught that they indeed were wise. They called themselves the wise men. And held that wisdom primarily consisted of using verbal quickness to get what you want. The worst sort of rhetoric out there. The mark of a sophist is that they charged tuition for the education they provided. <laughs> Which no genuine philosopher would do. The most famous sophist was Gorgias, who held that there is no absolute truth, but if there was, we couldn't know it, and even if we could know it, we couldn't express it, and even if we could express it, no one would understand it. How he knows such a thing is beyond me. <laughs> In contrast, the philosopher was characterized as much by a way of life as he was by a method of thinking. So this quote comes from Epictetus's Enchiridion, uh, which we'll come back to later, but is the best like handbook on how to be a good person in the ancient world. He says this, Never call yourself a philosopher, nor talk a great deal among the unlearned about theorems, 
but act conformably to them. So that if ever any talk should happen among the unlearned concerning philosophic theorems, be you for the most part silent. And here's a graphic image. For sheep don't throw up the grass to show the shepherds how much they have eaten. But inwardly digesting their food, they outwardly produce wool and milk. Sound familiar? A good tree bears good fruit. A bad tree bears bad fruit. They'll know you by your deeds. The Stoics, which Peter Kraft called the heterodox followers of Socrates, as opposed to the Epicureans who are the heretical followers of Socrates, understood that the lover of wisdom was the one who lived according to virtue and pursued the truth, like Socrates or Jesus, until the very end. Justin Martyr, a philosopher trained in all of the major schools of Greek philosophy, Stoic, academic, peripatetic, Neoplatonist, and won the right to wear the distinctive cloak of the philosopher, the Paleum, even after becoming a Christian and applying all of his learning to defending the faith, he produced the first real synthesis of Christian and Platonic thought, he continued to wear his philosopher's cloak. For him, there was no distinction. Christianity is no religion. It's a philosophy. It ultimately is the love of wisdom, and wisdom is a person. And we know him. Philosophy is thus most definitely not an academic subject. It is not an academic subject, but is instead a disposition toward the truth in life and in thought that one must pursue through all costs. And philosophy sits behind and before and under all academic subjects, all so-called subjects. So today, I want to address three disciplines within philosophy Two are concerned with the life of thought, one with the life of life. Uh, though, of course, we can't really draw those hard distinctions. Um, so here are the three. The first uh, subject matter I wish to discuss is metaphysics. Metaphysics, um, it's, it's so-called because it was ordered right there next to the physics in Aristotle's <laughs> works, um, studies the first principles of being a.k.a. the really real. Um, let's talk about the word study for a second. Um, I, I'm not a Latinist, but the, 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 uh, you know, the Latin dictionary tells me that the word originally ha means both um, like thinking about something and then striving for a thing. Okay, so it has to do with, um, it's not just a, stu the study of something is not just the cool, calm, collected, observed uh, looking at something. The, um, so everyone has a metaphysic. Everyone has an assumption about the way things really are, okay, about the things re how things really work. The goal, one of the goals of philosophy, though, is to uncover those assumptions and subject them to rigorous evaluation. Philosophers are so fun at parties. Okay. <laughs> it's very reasonable. I mean, this is Socrates. He goes around and asks people questions. You know, in the, in the Euthyphro, at the end, the Euthyphro just gives up and says, ah, I got an appointment, I got to go. And Socrates is like, you don't want to finish the conversation and find out the truth? No, I don't care anymore. The second area is epistemology, which is the study of how we know, and both, both how we know and what we will allow to count as knowledge. Okay. Um, 
as an, it, it's interesting to think about this because uh, one of the ways that uh, the world dismisses the supernatural claims of Christianity, or specifically the resurrection, is by saying, well, that sort of thing doesn't happen. People don't come back from the dead. But this is an epistemological claim, right, about what we're going to allow to count. It's a metaphysical claim with epistemological implications. Um, and so here's a quote from N.T. Wright, uh, the great New Testament scholar, in his book, Surprised by Hope. He says, the proposal that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead possesses unrivaled power to explain the historical data at the heart of early Christianity. The obvious fact that this remains hugely challenging at the personal and corporate level ought not to put us off from taking it seriously. Or are we only playing when we entertained the question in the first place? There are, after all, different types of knowing. Science studies the repeatable. History studies the unrepeatable. Caesar only crossed the Rubicon once, and if he'd crossed it again, it would have meant something different the second time. There was and could be only one first landing on the moon. The fall of the second Jerusalem temple took place in 70 AD and never happened again. Historians don't, of course, see this as a problem and are usually not shy about declaring that these events certainly took place, even though we can't repeat them in the laboratory. But when people say, but that can't have happened because we know that sort of thing doesn't actually happen, they are appealing to a would-be scientific principle of history, namely the principle of analogy. The problem with analogy is that it never quite gets you far enough. History is full of unlikely things that happened once and only once, with the result that the analogies are at best partial. Um, so what, what evidence will we allow on stage? What kind of, what counts as knowing? It's really important to have a clarity about that. Uh, and then the third uh, area is ethics, um, which is the study of how we ought to live. Okay? And I think that's, we talk about virtue and habit formation ad nauseum, things like this. And so um, I think we have a grasp of, of, about that a little bit. Our metaphysic leads to our epistemology, which shapes our ethics. Okay? For example... If our metaphysic denies the reality of immaterial substances, like all that there is is stuff that's made of stuff that we can touch, taste, smell, feel, hear, or detect and somehow with our technology, then our epistemology will deny that knowledge can be had of anything outside of material reality. And our ethics will degenerate into either rules for pro-social behavior among primates seeking evolutionary success or will degenerate into utter relativism. Okay. But if we have a metaphysic that asserts that the existence of immaterial substances and allows an epistemology that can help us discover these immaterial substances like God, angels, uh, abstract objects like propositional truths, moral values and duties, that allows us to then develop an ethic that is grounded in objective truth, objective reality. Okay, here's my warning. Caveat Magister Hicksunt Draconis. Right? This is this, this map, right? Medieval map. And there's a warning to people sailing on the, you know, don't go over there, there's where dragons are. Right? Here be dragons. Um, St. James says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Be careful when you teach a child to think, and doubly careful when you teach him how to live. Your hypocrisy in both will become increasingly evident. Okay. You have to have the life of the philosopher to match the mind of the philosopher. Or walk the walk, not just talk the talk, as the kids say. I guess they don't say that anymore. But I say it. Okay. 
So my goal today is to give you the basics in what I perceive to be the three most important areas that the Christ classical Christian education movement needs to recover. So let's talk first about metaphysics. Okay, if you don't take anything else away, take this away from metaphysics, that there are two principles of being. Okay? There is substantial being, and there is accidental being. Okay, substantial being is what a thing is in itself. That is what is essential to a thing for it to be that thing and not another thing. Okay? Um, in the main stage, Joseph Pierce asks, what is it about humans that distinguish us from other animals? Right? What, and we would call that the image of God. And so he identified rationality, creativity, um, and, and morality. Okay? Um, and laughter. Although hyenas laugh, but I don't know if they're... I don't know. I don't know. Monkeys laugh. Well, whatever. All right, we're going to go with it. So um, this, this fits Aristotle's definition of a human being, which is the hylomorphic union of a rational soul with an animal body. Or... A human is the rational animal. So the genus of human is animal. The specific difference that distinguishes humans from other animals is rational. St. Thomas Aquinas thinks we're barely rational, which is probably true, but um, we're so rational. Um, but the other characteristics of a human being, height, hair color, uh, language, age, um, clothing you're wearing, pigmentation of your skin. Those are all accidental qualities. None of those things are essential. No particular version of those things is essential for you to be a human being. Okay? They shape who you are as distinct from other human beings, but none of them are essential to you, or to, to being a human being. Okay? Now, the fact that we have animal bodies means that we have to have some version of that. We have to have skin, we have to have hair, we have to have height and weight and take up, you know, live in a certain place and time and have a language. But the particularities of that aren't filled out uh, for, our, for what it means essentially to be a human being, as opposed to another essential uh, thing. Okay, so this, that, those are all accidental qualities. So additional attributes of a thing, that is what is not essential to a thing for it to be that thing and not another. Okay, and so Aristotle has nine categories of accidental being. And so I want us to think briefly about the nine categories. Um, the key here is that there is no phenomena that cannot be understood according to the categories. They are exhaustive and comprehensive. Philosophers have tried for a long time to think of things that don't fit in the categories. And I don't think, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, the central philosophical question, which every toddler knows, because every toddler is a philosopher until they're trained out of it, is why? Why? Okay, so we're going to try to answer those. Um, here are the categories. Um, and the slides, I think, are available in Hoover, so you'll be able to find them. Um, Aristotle helpfully has a, a treatise called Categories, which he explains these things. Um, but quantity, okay, the measurement of a thing. Okay? So for my example, let's take a star. Let's actually take the star Sirius which is the brightest star in the night sky, although it is, I think, the third closest to Earth. It has the greatest luminous magnitude. Um, <clears throat> now, what is a star? So substantially, we might say a star is an astronomical object comprising a luminous spheroid of plasma held together by self-gravity. And I looked that up on the Internet because 
I don't know enough about stars, really. Um, but what are the accidents of a star? So let's, let, what makes Sirius Sirius and not another star? Okay. Um, well, let's talk about its quantity, its measurement. It has a 1.46 magnitude, which is the brightest. And in 60,000 years, it's going to have even, even, even brighter. It's going to reach according, apparently. Um, okay. Quality, how something appears to the senses. Okay, so our perspective. It's, it's bright. It's bright. It actually appears as one, one star, but I think there's a white dwarf orbiting it. So. Um, third is relation. How one thing affects or is affected by another thing. Okay, it is orbited or orbits with a white dwarf, and the gravity from each star actually affects the other. Okay, that's something we can say about Sirius. Uh, place, it, it's about the geographic location of a thing in space. So it's 2.64 parsecs away from us. And uh, uh, for all you Star Wars fans, a parsec is a measure of distance, not of time. So the fact that the Millennium Falcon made the Kessel Run in, in, in whatever, 14 parsecs, is everyone did it in 14 parsecs, if that's how long it is. <laughs> wow. I ran five miles in five miles. Um, okay. Uh, time. Time is the temporal location of a thing. So where is it um, in relation to our present? Um, and it, the, the Sirius is present, although the light that we perceive from Sirius is 8.6 years old, because it takes 8.6 years for the light from Sirius to reach Earth. So we're looking into the past, you know, which is a weird thing to think about. Okay, um, then we have position. Position is the relation of parts of a thing to other parts of the same thing, Okay. So um, everything that is uh, material has parts to it. Everything that's material is composite. It's combined of different, different bits. Um, and so uh, it's a sphere of plasma with the technical term here, the innards of the star moving a lot faster than the outer bits of the star. So they're in a constant motion um, in, in relation to each other. Uh, the state. So state is an ongoing but not inherent attribute of a thing. What's it doing right now? Um, it's, it's spinning. And it's moving toward our solar system. It's going to take it a while uh, to get here. Uh, but it's moving. And then action and passion, how changes to a thing affect another thing. These are things I couldn't Google quickly about stars, about Sirius, so I, I don't have answers. But uh, they are um, how, how things uh, relate to one another by changing them, okay, um, by, by changing them. Okay, so thinking a bit about metaphysics here, a question a philosopher might ask when trying to get at substance is this. So we'll go back to... I'm sorry. What, what do I need to do here? Okay. Okay. Um, a philosopher might ask the following. In physics, what is a, what is a law of motion? Okay. Now, when a materialist explains some natural phenomena as simply following the laws of motion, that's just what it does, what are they asserting? Well, in Aristotelian terms, a law of nature, a law of motion, is just a description of the way that bodies tend to act. 
It's just descriptive, not causative. The laws of nature don't cause things. They're just our descriptions of how things are. So the answer to the question, why does the Earth, why does the moon orbit the Earth, can't really be answered by, well, it's gravity. Because what is gravity? It's a force that pulls. And, well, yeah, but like what, isn't that just a description of how the moon and massive objects tend to behave toward one another? If that's the case, then like we don't have an explanation of what it is. Okay. Um, the philosopher wants to know why the law of nature is such and such. Okay, kids are not satisfied with that's just the way it is answer. It's just how it is. Even if I use that with my children a lot. It's the way the world works. And neither are philosophers. It takes a harassed and harried middle-aged adult to be satisfied with such nonsense as well, it's just the way things are. We don't, we don't have time. Right? So Aristotle's theory of the elements is, is an example. So he thought that fire goes up because it's trying to get back to the stars where fire comes from, obviously. And stones fall to the earth because they're trying to get home to the earth where stones come from. Water heads towards water, trying to get back home. Um, air floats, you know, coalescing where it belongs. Everything's trying to get back where it belongs. It's trying, order, things are tending toward order. Okay? That's an explanation. Now, it's, it's wrong, um, but at least it has more explanatory power than gravity. Gravity is just a description, not an answer to the question why. Okay. So that's metaphysics and bleeds into physics, which is his term for anything that has to do with natural phenomena. Unless you're clear on what evidence you're going to, unless you're clear on what, what's actually real, whether there are things beyond what we can see, touch, taste, or smell, you're going to have a hard time talking about reality. All right, second category is epistemology. Epistemology. Um, the three acts of the mind, so if you've taught logic or seen logic, usually this is included in um, introduction to logic. Um, but the three acts of the mind, um, it, it comes, it derives ultimately from Aristotle's posterior analytics, but um, well, we, the form we know it in, it comes from St. Thomas Aquinas's commentary on the posterior analytics. Um, so in his foreword to his commentary, St. Thomas says this, now there are three acts of the reason. One action of the intellect is the understanding of indivisible or uncomplex things. And according to this action, it conceives what a thing is. The second operation of the intellect is its act of combining or dividing, in which the true or, or the false are for the first time present. But the third act of the reason is concerned with that which is peculiar to reason, namely to advance from one thing to another in such a way that though that which is known, a man comes to a knowledge of the unknown. Okay? So that's the quote, but let's, talk, let's, let's simplify it a little bit. So the first act of the mind, or first act of reason, is apprehension. 
the recognition and naming or classification of a thing or a concept, a term, we might say. That's an apple. That's a man. That's a cow. Okay? Naming things. Answering what is it. This is, if we go back, I'll, I'll come back in a second. If we go back to our metaphysics, this substantial being. We're naming substances. We're naming essences. We're saying what a thing is. And then we're furthermore describing it with its various accidental qualities. Okay. A term. It's crucial that a term is neither true nor false. It just is. It's not saying anything. It's not making any claims. can't reason about it. It just is. Apple, you know, neither true nor false. It just is. The second, uh, the second um, act of the mind is judgment. So a, th a thinking process that occurs when a person expresses a relationship between two terms, a proposition. This apple is red. Okay, that's a claim about truth. This apple is red. That is, what we mean is this apple has the accidental quality of being red. Okay. Um, or, you know, dogs are man's best friend. That's going to be maybe harder to demonstrate, but it's still a claim about truth. Okay. I am taking two terms, dogs and man's best friend, and relating them to each other in some manner. Okay? We do this in all areas of knowledge. Right? All, of, all subjects, all disciplines, we're always doing this. Okay? We're making a proposition or a truth claim. Um, the third is, uh, act of the mind is, is inference, a reasoning process through which a person arrives at new information through the implications of other axioms, postulates, or observed examples. So we have an argument. So in logic, the first act of the mind, apprehension, results in a term. The second act of the mind, um, judgment, results in a proposition. And the third act of the mind, uh, inference, results in a syllogism or an argument. Okay? Uh, dog is man's best friend because dogs are loyal. Now, dogs are loyal is another claim, a propositional claim, that I'm using. I'm hoping you agree with that one already so that I, you will then accept my previous statement that dogs are man's best friend. If you don't, I might need to demonstrate that dogs are loyal. Right? And I could do this you know, inductively. Right? I could just look at all the examples of dogs being loyal. You know? like if you go through my Instagram feed, you'll just see lots of reels of dogs doing awesome dog stuff. I'm a huge fan of dogs. I do have a blind chihuahua named Mr. Mom who wears a bow tie. And he's like 17 years old. And Anyways, he pretends to be deaf, but then he hears food drop, and ha-ha, <laughs> catch him. Um, anyways, he's a mascot, sort of. My students love Mr. Um, okay, and so an argument then seeks reasons in support of a truth claim, and you just going to have to back that up until you find a, a, place, a grounding place, somewhere where we can just assert something that's true. Okay, an axiom, a first principle. Okay. Um, and so I see epistemology as being really important for us to actually think about when we're teaching whatever subjects we're teaching. How do we know things in this class? How do we relate these things to each other? Okay. Um, St. Thomas further suggests 
that there are basically three reasoning processes, which we're all familiar with. Deduc there's deduction and induction. So deduction is reasoning from established principles to a necessary conclusion. Famously, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. If the first two premises are true, that all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, that it's, never the, the, it's, it's necessarily true that, all, that Socrates is mortal. Okay. Um, it, there's, not a lot we, there's not a lot of things that we do on a regular basis that lends themselves to deductive reasoning. Um, mathematics, of course. Um, logic, of course, which is what it is. But um, mostly we have to do induction. So inductive reasoning is reasoning from data, from examples, uh, to a, a general conclusion. So St. Thomas calls this... Um, probability or likelihood, okay? Um, and the problem with induction is that, that it has the black swan problem. So if I make the claim that the, all swans are white and I base this on like no one's ever seen a swan that isn't white, and then in the late 1800s they discover black swans in Australia or whatever, I don't remember the whole story, uh, that disconfirms my claim, okay? Um, inductive reasoning is the reasoning we use almost all the time in almost every area. So think about a literary analysis, making a claim about, a, about character development or something like that, and you're gathering textual evidence, right? textual details. Um, think, you know, in science, obviously, same sort of thing. Okay. And he says the, first, the third uh, process, he says, is, is just fallacious thinking. <laughs> it's, it's, it's where you, you get confused somehow along the way, um, and you made, you made an error in one of the three acts of the mind. Okay. You didn't name the term correctly, your proposition isn't true, or your conclusion doesn't follow from your premises, something like that. Okay, our third area is ethics. Um, ethics is something we're more familiar with, we think a lot about. Aristotle defines virtue as a state of a thing, well this is my summary of Aristotle, but virtue is defined as the state of a thing that makes that thing good. The word just means excellence, um, arite in Greek is just excellence. So, you know, I, to get my students to really get this, I ask them about what the virtues of coffee are. What would be good coffee? Not Starbucks. That's... Oh, okay. Um, a thing aiming at and achieving its purpose or end. Okay, that's, that's a virtuous thing. If it aims at and achieves its purpose. So in humans, that end is happiness or eudaimonia. And it terminates in the contemplation of God. That's our highest end. Um, and the way we know this for Aristotle is that what is a human being? A human being is a rational animal. Um, humans have two sorts of things they can do with their rationality. They can be moral and they can, they can think. And so humans have virtues of character and virtues of thought. Um, and so it's the exercise of these distinctive qualities of humans that make us unique so that points us toward our our purpose, um, and the highest good that can be conceived is God, and so the contemplation of God is our highest end. Um, in humans, virtue requires, A, the correct decision discerned via prudence. Get to know what we're aiming at. Okay. B, aiming at the fine, or the noble, and C, taking pleasure in the action as such. Thus, a virtue is a condition of the soul whereby a person wants to do the right thing and does so. And it's distinguished from mere self-control, which um, some translations of him will call continence. So simply doing what you know you're supposed to do, even though you don't want to, doesn't count as virtue for Aristotle. Um, it's a good thing, 
It's a good thing, but you should be seeking to have your loves transformed so that you actually desire the good thing. Right? In, a, in an ideal world where there is no sin, I, broccoli would be as delicious as, as, as candy, and candy would taste like Brussels sprouts. Okay. Um, I have a long way to go in f- rightly forming my loves of food. Um, I have a disordered love of food. You know, or opera would actually be enjoyable. I mean, don't stone me. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I know, I'm so sorry. I, it's just me. It's just me. I'm, I'm, I'm a lowbrow kind of guy. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, so that's virtue. And, and the question we're always asking all the time is, well, how do we do it? How do we make ourselves more virtuous? How do we make our students more virtuous? How do we form their loves? What can we possibly do about this? I lay before my students the great feast of ideas, and they say, nah, nah, fam, I don't you know, care about that. For real, for real. No cap. <laughs> um, so Aristotle further clarifies that virtue is acquired via habituation, a process requiring imitation of noble exemplars and a lot of practice. Uh, the analogy I always use is to learning a musical instrument or learning to play a sport. Um, is, is the, all the running and training and everything you have to do to get in shape to you know, play your sport. Is that fun? Well, I don't know. Um, is, is all the constant drilling and practicing your scales like fun? Uh, no, but you, you're aiming at the fine, and eventually you'll, you'll have a desire um, for that thing, and you'll achieve it. Okay. Again, but like how? How do we, like what's some practical ideas? So... This is why I uh, want to. I'm seeking a recovery of Stoic philosophy. That is, I love Aristotle, um, and he's fantastic. Um, but he uh, and he he was a great guy. But he didn't think a ton, or at least write a ton, about um, like how how we live virtuously. So um, I highly recommend Epictetus's Enchiridion. It's like ten pages if you print it out. Okay, it's like it's just a collection of sort of wise sayings. They don't necessarily follow one from the other. Um, but they, they're brilliant. Um, you may not know this, but uh, Albert Ellis, the inventor of cognitive behavior therapy in the 70s, 60s, um, he got the idea from reading Epictetus. Um, and one of the central claims that Epictetus makes is uh, that it's we're not distressed by things, by, pe- by people or events, but we're distressed by our thoughts about people or events. Okay? Um, and so if we can change our thoughts about them, then we'll, you will be happier, less fearful, and more able to live virtuously. The biggest uh, danger to virtue is, is, I mean, at least for me, is fear, anxiety, trying to, trying to prolong my life. Um, uh, so here are some just distillations from his, um, from his Enchiridion. So some things are under our control, while other things are not. And this seems like, duh. Um, but we live so much of our lives trying to control things that are not under our control. And our students do too. Okay. Um, virtue begins when we can consistently tell the difference. And this is the serenity prayer, right? 
I mean, it's the same. It's the same thing. It's ancient. Therefore, it's a good. No. Um, well, sort of. Um, two, like he says, things outside of us do not cause us misfortune. Rather, it is our thoughts about outside things. Train yourself to accept all of life as a gift from God. Okay. Um, this doesn't mean you don't have emotions or react. I mean, that's a bad reading of the Stoics. Um, but it's that you, um, you have a different lens through which you, you accept the things of the world, things that happen to you. Uh, third, this, again, that's something we all know, do the right thing regardless of the response of others. He says, if, if it's the right thing to do, but you don't do it because you're afraid of others, then you're not acting rightly. And if it's not the right thing to do, you shouldn't be doing it at all. Right? But, you know, you can't control other people. You shouldn't let them control you. He asks, uh, he says, you wouldn't allow someone to just, like, tackle you in an alley and steal your stuff, right, without, like, a fight. But you allow people to tackle your mind and take control of it from you. Why would you allow your mind to be mugged by the people around you? And fourth, uh, the minds of others are hidden from you. Give the benefit of the doubt. Okay. He says somewhere that you should just assume that the people that act in ways that distress you are doing so because they believe it's the best thing. Okay. Um, and I forget who said this, but you should, we should never attribute to malice what can be attributed to ignorance. Um, and uh, at some point, severe ignorance becomes indistinguishable from malice, right? Um, but you just have a much happier life if you don't assume everyone's out to get you. My children, uh, my oldest, she kicked me and she did it on purpose! How do you know? I can see it. And her eyes. <laughs> and I mean, if she's talking about my middle child, she probably did kick her on purpose. But, yeah. Let's be real. It's like a uh, which child of yours is most likely to overthrow a regime someday, and why is it your middle child is, is correct. So. Um, okay, so um, one of the challenges maybe to this way of thinking is that, yeah, 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 philosophy, 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 but what about the gospel, and, you know, is it really Christian, and can Christians use all this secular learning. Um, and, uh, I mean, we're the Society for Classical Learning, so I think we kind of accept that the pagans are onto stuff, um, at least in some ways. Um, but this is a question wrestled with by the early church. Um, you have folks like Justin Martyr, who are synthesizing Plato with, with Christianity. And you have folks like Tertullian, who are th saying things like, what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? Right? Um, and St. Augustine comes along, and he uses the metaphor um, of the Egyptians um, and how the Israelites plundered the Egyptians on their way out of Dodge, um, and says this, Moreover, if those who are called philosophers, and especially the Platonists, have said aught that is true and in harmony with our faith, we are not only not to shrink from it, but to claim it for our own use from those who have, been un who have unlawful possession of it. If the Stoics said anything worthwhile, that's, that's actually Jesus's and not theirs. Um, he's, he's, the, he's the mind behind all things. Um, and so 
obviously with discernment, right? Uh, this is actually in, um, it's in De Doctrine, it's in, it's in his On Christian Teaching, and he advances the metaphor further and talks about the gold and silver of the Egyptians taken by the Israelites and how those were used to construct the tabernacle, the, the very heart of the worship of God. And similarly, we can take the stuff from the philosophers, from the, from the poets, and use it in the worship of God, the construction of a beautiful edifice of, of knowledge. Um, so my point is something like this. Um, philosophy has a lot to offer. Um, I don't honestly think it necessarily needs to be, all right, now we're taking a philosophy class. Um, we're, how we're going to shove that into the curriculum? We already have, you know, do we need 12 periods a day? I, you know. Um, nor do I think it's appropriate at all developmental stages, right? Um, but um, clarity by teachers on these sort of major questions of what's really real, what evidence do we allow on stage, how do we discern truth from falsehood, um, having some sense of metaphysics, some idea about epistemology, and then, of course, the ethics bit, like, this informs our, our classroom teaching and discipline and all of that. Um, and even the way we encourage students to think about ideas and treat others, um, I think can, can give us a basis for how we, how we do instruction. And then in certain disciplines, um, for example, I was talking to our, our biology teacher, teaches biology right, freshman year, and could we have, we have like a little like unit on epistemology and the sciences, right? How do we know the things we know in the sciences? What, what counts and what questions are we not able to ask or answer? versus what questions can we ask or answer in this discipline. Um, and if we could have a kind of a common language across the curriculum, across the disciplines, with the um, various uh, teachers using the same sort of language, whether from the categories or something like that, I think that could be quite, um, quite useful. So I'm available now for questions if there are any. <laughs>